Pope St. John Paul II said that discovering Christ always again and always more fully is the most wonderful adventure of our life. Blazing the Trail is a weekly conversation where we talk about this adventure with courage and hope while sharing stories about what the Holy Spirit is doing in Western Oregon and beyond. And welcome back to Blazing the Trail here on Mater Dei Radio. It's great to be with you all each week. My name is Miriam Marston, and my guest this week, Gloria Purvis, walks us through a bit of her story and how her faith has really shaped and informed her ministry, which focuses on the dignity of the human person. In the first part of our interview, you'll hear Gloria share about how she converted to Catholicism at a young age, and how her mother, who wasn't Catholic but still very supportive of her daughter's decision, said, if you're going to be a Catholic, then you're going to be a Catholic. In other words, she was going to take it seriously and go all in. And I love that story because it, it illustrates beautifully that we should really hope and pray for the kind of conversion that goes deeper than anything else, any desire, idea, or experience so deep and wide that there isn't a part of our life that is unaffected or untouched by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want just a part of us converted. That's like saying, I want my right arm to function well and to do what it's supposed to do, but eh, it's okay if the rest of my body isn't up to snuff. I mean, it, it really doesn't work that way. And as I was thinking of other stories of conversion, I remembered one person by the name of André Frossard, who was the son of one of the founders of the French Communist Party. André was an atheist, but at age 20, he was meeting up with a friend, and that friend had to swing by a church to uh, run an errand. So André stumbled into Eucharistic adoration and had no idea what was going on. But here is how he describes what happened next. It was an indestructible crystal, totally transparent, luminous to such a degree that any further intensity would have destroyed me. With a color near to blue, a different world whose brilliance and density made our world seem like the wrath of an unfulfilled dream. What I saw was reality. This was truth, and I was seeing it from the dim shore on which I still stood. Now I knew that there is order in the universe, and at its beginning, beyond the shining mists, the manifestation of God. A manifestation which is a presence, which is a person, the person whose existence I should have denied a moment ago. The presence of Him whom the Christians call our Father. And I knew that he was gentle, that his gentleness was unparalleled, and that his was not the passive quality that is sometimes called by the name of gentleness, but an active, shattering gentleness, far outstripping violence, able to smash the hardest stone and to smash something much harder than stone, the human heart. This surging, overwhelming invasion brought with it a sense of joy comparable to that of a drowning man who was rescued at the last moment, but with this difference, that it was at the moment in which I was being hauled to safety that I became aware of the mud in which, without noticing it, I had until then been stuck, and now I wondered how I had ever been able to breathe and to live in it. Again, that is André Frossard speaking about an experience in 1935, and he compared it to going to the Paris Zoo and coming out of that as a giraffe. That's the kind of radical change he experienced. And it's humorous, but truly, we do become a new creature when we are baptized. So really, his analogy isn't too far off. And we think it's extraordinary, but my friends, really, that's the ordinary work of God. 
So I'll let Gloria take it from here and we'll have a reflection on the other side of the interview. Well, it is a joyful privilege to be joined by Gloria Purvis, who is the host and executive producer of the Gloria Purvis podcast and is a wonderful advocate for the dignity of the human person. Gloria, how are you today? I'm better now that I'm talking to you, Miriam. This is great. I'm excited to talk to you today. And hopefully many people will be touched and encouraged by our conversation. Oh, thank you for taking the time. And, you know, for a while now, Gloria, I've really appreciated the work that you've done to really get to the heart of those significant questions and issues of our time. And those have been religious questions, cultural ones, all of the stuff that makes up uh, who we are. And You know, if I'm grateful for your work now, that means I'm also grateful for what God has done in your life to bring you to this moment. So let's look more closely at that. How did you personally experience evangelization in your own life? It looks so different for each person. So what did the movement of the Holy Spirit look like in your own story? So, yeah, you know, I grew up in a family um, that wasn't Catholic. I converted Mm -hmm. at age 12. But um, from an early age, I mean, we were believers. Uh, We went to church every Sunday. Uh, My mother was a Methodist. My father grew up Baptist. My grandmother that lived with us was Baptist, but we went to a Methodist church because of my mother's church. But I remember Sunday being a whole like pageant experience. I mean, there was a lot of effort put into, like I got my hair and the Shirley Temple curls, which took time. All of my sisters did. We dressed in our Sunday finest, like really dressing up to go to church and be present um, at church. Although because they're Methodists, they didn't have a sacrifice of the mass like we do as Catholics. And I remember being fully present um, and the Easter speeches that we used to have to prepare as children, just a very different experience as a Protestant. And then um, at age 12, well, let's just say this from first to 12th grade, my parents sent me and all my sisters to Catholic school because they believe Catholics where I lived, gave the best education. Um, so it was in Catholic school that I had an encounter during adoration with the real presence, where I was convinced that it was real, that he was there. Um, I was My body was consumed in flames. I knew I was on fire, but it didn't hurt. But at the same time that I was consumed in these flames, I had an immediate knowledge that what was in the monstrance was real. And so a couple of days later, I went to my parents, I was 12 and informed them I was becoming a Catholic and they didn't. And even though I lived in the Bible Belt and nobody really in our friend zone, no, I take that back. My my mother's one of my mother's very good friends, best friends was Catholic. But for practical experiences, not, you know, it didn't really have an impact. Catholic belief, Catholic practice wasn't really factoring majorly in my family's life, but nonetheless, my mother was like, okay, if you're going to be a Catholic, you're going to be a Catholic. You're going to mass on Sundays, holy <laughs> days of obligation, no meat on Fridays. You're going to pray the rosary, you know, all those things. And so that was my life at 12 years old. I did. I went to mass by myself because I was alone Catholic in the family. But the funny thing is through the practice of the faith, you know, my family ended up taking a lot of Catholic, ended up taking on a lot of Catholic practices and devotions as well. So no one ate meat on Friday because my mother's like, I'm not cooking twice. Um, (laughs) You know, they were very receptive to my bringing holy water in the house, my having the rosary on my bed. My Baptist grandmother actually encouraged me to pray the rosary. And in solidarity, she put a rosary right next to her little, her Bible that's on her nightstand to 
And she brought me in her room and showed me, this is okay. You do that. You're Catholic now. She was the one that showed me when we drove past Catholic church. She's like, you're Catholic now. You're supposed to make the sign of the cross when you go by. So I didn't, you know, I didn't have anybody to really teach me. So my Baptist grandmother taught me what she knew of certain Catholic devotions, which made it, um, I just never felt ostracized, nothing but completely supported in my faith. And I really believe that was mm, the presence of God um, in my home in my family life where my expression and belief was not ostracized or rejected, but rather was very much supported and made room for. And they didn't see it as having to conflict with their beliefs because we all believed in God. We all believed in Jesus Christ. And so they didn't have a suspicious, negative attitude about Catholicism. So that was a blessing. Wow, that is a huge blessing. There's there's so much there. I mean, you went from, I know you covered it quickly, but it sounds like a profound mystical experience at that young age. I mean, that yeah. is quite a gift. Isn't it amazing that that's a way that the Lord can evangelize is just through those mystical experiences. He can, and he he has done that with me. I, I credit it to being that he said he had pity on this little girl in South Carolina. It was like, she's not going to make it without some kind of special like knock on the head. And so he really did something extraordinary to get my attention. And I think that was due to my brokenness, frankly. Um, And I think it's just God's mercy. It is not because I've sometimes met people that want to try to say, oh, you're super extra special, holy, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't that. I think he Mm. gave me what he saw in my brokenness that I needed Okay. And that's what that was. Um, All of us are special in this site. Okay. So I just, I just want to say that from the outset, because in other ways, you know, what made me actively pro-life again was a mystical experience, but it was one in which I received what I would call a mini chastisement from God. Okay. So a very small, but I tell you, don't, I'm like, boy, we do not, we are not ready for the final judgment. (laughs) Let me just tell you, because that little chastisement, it's just, it's just, you don't ever want that, but it's certainly, um, it certainly set me on the path that I'm on now, you know? Yeah. Well, let's, so let's, uh, let's look at that a bit more. So where did life take you sort of after school was wrapping up? Well, yeah. Where were you headed? Yeah. I went to college. I went to Ivy league, um, college, Ivy league university. Um, and so I went there totally believing in my faith, still believing when I got there, very naive, I would say, okay. uh, in, in that I didn't expect people to challenge me or challenge the faith type of thing. But, you know, I've been, my dad says contrarian. I've never been one to think I need to go with the crowd. Yeah. And so I was totally okay, yeah. you know, with uh, people not agreeing with me. I was totally okay with, you know, people trying to say, oh my gosh, you're no fun. Eh, it's all right. Cause I thought, Hey, I'm having fun. I am fun. <laughs> you know, are you kidding me? So, um, that was interesting for me in college. And then, um, after that, it was after college, um, and after I was married actually, that I had this little chastisement. Mm-hmm. We were actually at mass and we got to the part where we say in the creed, I believe in the Holy spirit, the Lord and giver of life. When I heard a voice say, are you lying? Are you blaspheming? How can you say you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life? What are you doing with this gift of life on earth? Are you, you know, this sort of thing. And all this, of course, was like in a millionth of a second. Of course, right. (laughs) But but it set me on a path of being hungry for what the church taught about 
the human person, human sexuality, marriage, family, like why, 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 why? And um, it was in this seeking to understand better why the church teaches what she teaches that I had opportunities to defend and explain the faith. But these opportunities rarely happened in church. They happened on my job. Yeah. Right. And so I find that when you say yes to God, um, evangelization, a lot of times is just the, whoever the person is he puts in front of you. Right. And, and a lot of times it wasn't me initiating the conversation. It would be somebody saying something in which I was a party to the conversation. And my portion was to then, you know, really try to try to explore what they're saying in light of the gospel, in light of the Catholic faith. So for those just tuning in, I'm speaking with Gloria Purvis. And Gloria, let's, if we can, if we can un, mm-hmm. unpack a little bit more of what you're doing today, really what's front and center uh, these days in your, I mean, would you call it a ministry, Gloria? What yeah, you're doing? sure. Yeah, yeah, I would call it a ministry. I, let me just be clear. Like I'm actually a full-time stay-at-home mom. I'm married. I have a child. Oh, yeah. And that's my primary ministry, if you will. Yeah. And the Lord has allowed me though to still be able to serve him in the area of helping people grapple with the meaning of human dignity. Love it. Um, uh, before the racial reckoning that we've had in the United States, I was much more well known for um, my commentary and witness on the dignity of women mm-hmm. and yeah. of our children and of sex and marriage. And then when questions about the dignity of the human person in regards to race came about. I started to speak out more about racism as an affront to the gospel, racism as rebellion against God's word, where he said in Genesis 126, let us make man in our image. This is when he created the whole human family and that we have this common bond and that God is our common ancestor. And we are uh, one human family and racism rends the bonds of the human family. And then I talk specifically about how that happened in the United States historically, its impact in the church and how racism, the experience of this sin for centuries in this country still has impact on us today because we as believers know that the effects of sin can outlive the person who committed the sin. Yeah. And so to really try to, have people understand racism from the perspective of our Catholic faith and understand that we do this. We have these conversations because people can go to hell for the sin of racism. The church is not caught up in some political zeitgeist. This is our perennial teaching about the beauty of the human person. And unfortunately, because of racism, our ability to see clearly in this area is cloudy. So we need to shine the light of the gospel here. Absolutely. And you know, when you're, you're thinking like, what, my goodness, how, how different our world would look like if, if we really honored and, and uh, really looked and understood the dignity of each and every person, Gloria, what, what would our world look like? And I'm not talking pie in the sky, yeah. like sentimental. We're talking real change and conversion. What would our world look like? I think our world would look like one where, we'd be much less attached to things. Hmm. The spirit of detachment would be much greater because I think our attachment to things has made up, come up, uh, has uh, has um, enabled, or should I say, made people look for reasons to 
discard the fact of who we are, right? To look for reasons why we shouldn't live in solidarity, why we shouldn't uh, share, why we shouldn't have compassion for, or if you say what the Pope Francis tell, tells our priest to smell like the sheep, right? Yeah. To be a close relationship with each other. So I think a world that what our world would look like is we would have much more intimate, authentic relationships, especially when people are suffering, um, that there would not be this, there would be a greater bend toward uh, the common good rather than my individual freedom. Yeah. So I think it would be a much, much different place. I don't think we would also have necessarily these extremes, extreme poverty yeah. or extreme wealth. Yeah. I think I think because we value things differently yeah. and um, we wouldn't prize our comfort above and beyond the safety and well-being of our neighbors. So I do think it'd be a completely uh, different mode of living yeah. if we lived according to the gospel. Gloria, that's beautiful. So as I'm thinking, how how do we sort of build up these habits of compassion and empathy? What, where, how do we build up those good habits? You know, it's interesting. I was just talking with um, Dr. Bernice King. She's the daughter of the late um, Martin Luther King Jr. And she and I were talking about this. And I quite like the suggestion she had. She says, you know, to actually think and put yourselves in the shoes mm. of somebody else. So for, let me give an example. And this is something I had had been thinking about before I had the conversation with her. Um, we all are aware of what happened with George Floyd and Officer Derek Chauvin. And a lot of times people focus rightfully on the suffering of George Floyd, on his murder, on the abuse that he experienced. What we might not often do, which I think we need to do, is also look at Officer Chauvin because I think it is a mistake to think that racism didn't harm him as well. I think the way he behaved was beneath his dignity as a human person. So we have to think what happened in his experience in his life where he came to the place where he could behave in such a manner. And from that purge, I actually see how he's been harmed. I also completely, not to say that George Floyd has not been harmed. I, I see that. But as a believer, I see how sin harms human relationships in a 360 perspective in both ways. Yeah. And so um, that is one of the things that we have to be able to do is look at how does a particular evil harm all that's involved, all harm all who are involved. Mm -hmm. And even in the case of people, we want to make them into villains, if you will. And people yeah. may behave in a villainous manner. It does not mean, though, that we should not want their repentance, conversion, and salvation. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, I, I can't help but think, too, about the experience you shared earlier about you had this sort of keen sense of the mercy of God. You know, oh, yeah. that this oh, conversion yeah. was really, it was it was through mercy. And, you know, I I know, you know, I, I think it was prophetic, Gloria, honestly, that we had the year of mercy. Yeah. Um, just a few years before, I feel like a lot got unleashed in the You're world. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, Gloria, how, so having these habits of compassion, how can we be just more, how can we be agents and instruments of mercy towards each other to, to precisely re reflect that very spirit and life of God that you experienced? How do we bring that to others as well? Yeah, I think um, sometimes <laughs> we are quick to be um, punitive mm -hmm. 
Now, I'm not saying people should escape justice, criminal justice and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not saying that at all, because sometimes people could take mercy and make it into something where you have to suffer abuse in the name of being Christian. And that's not true. Um, We shouldn't have to suffer things that undermine and undercut our human dignity. Okay, so let's not confuse that. So but mercy, I think, is to um, be less quick to impose cruel words uh, among people, less to speak harm with our mouths, less to tweet maliciously, right? To actually give people the benefit of the doubt and assume people have good motivations until they show you otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the slowness to anger is something that we need to try to, to engage. Yeah. And, but then we also need to understand what it means to act with righteous anger too. Yeah. Yeah. And not just with a, a blinded fury, right? That has no rhyme or reason, but um, to be able to have a self-mastery of our emotions, mm-hmm. especially in the face of insult <laughs> or yeah. even injustice, that we still need to be able to respond in a way that is not further destructive of the bonds of the human family. Now I get that sometimes people act in rage and sometimes because they feel like they're not hurt and things like that. And that happens because we're broken. But I always believe we can begin again. We can try to start over, hit the reset button, try to practice patience. And a lot of that also is praying. Yeah. Uh, You know, I really think we shouldn't run out and start to do and speak and do things without really grounding and rooting ourselves in God. Because then if you are not rooted and if your base is not Jesus from which you spring, if your base from which you spring is not Jesus, then you're acting on a different impulse. Sometimes right. it's ego and vanity and pride, and that's dangerous. Yeah. And, and also realizing that sometimes evangelizing means doing penance for somebody else, doing acts of reparation for someone else, especially the people you don't like. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because yeah. uh, we, we just need a lot to do to try to, um, to try to imitate Christ and, and try to hear his will. And I've never seen Christ live in a way that's indulgent mm-hmm. or in a way that he refuses to help someone that's coming to him in need or in brokenness. And sometimes even his word has been, you know, to say to people, you know, you're what a brood of vipers or whatever. Now, let me just say this. When Christ says brood of vipers to someone because he, he is Jesus, because <laughs> how he says and how's received is going to be different from if I said it. So sometimes I'm like, you know, I don't have that. I ain't him. So I'm, I'm careful to not use words like that to people. But he knows what medicine each soul needs and um, he will apply it. It's just a matter of the person is going to open up your mouth, if you will, and receive that medicine. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think having compassion, empathy, detachment from things of the world, um, a good prayer life doing the interior work, willing to consider someone else's point of view helps. But all of that requires um, a lack of rashness, I guess, some Mm. that we just have to have a little bit more patience. And maybe that comes with age and time, but it's certainly something we can develop and realize you guys, these are the things we're going to want when we have fallen and when we have acted inappropriately or when we have sinned. We want that same mercy given to us, you know? Yeah, amen to that. You know, along the way, Gloria, have you found, you mentioned prayers, of course. uh, Mm -hmm. You know, with the time that we've got left, I'm just curious, have there been 
prayers that have kind of stood out for you, especially, and also a few saints along the way that you have found their friendship particularly helpful? Oh, yeah. St. Teresa Babila is my girl. Okay. She loves me. I remember reading her books <laughs> and uh, she talks about seeing her place in hell. And that just fried my wig because I'm like, how are you this religious sister living in a convent centuries ago? How is it can be a place uh, in hell for you? You know what I mean? And I was like, what does this mean for me? And, and I just kind of I really appreciate her and appreciate her forthrightness and her willingness to 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 imitate Christ, even in, in terms of suffering and her willingness to do uh, to take on suffering to have someone else liberated from an evil. She would say, Lord, just let me suffer whatever, as long as it doesn't mean I lose the faith. And usually a horrible suffering would come upon her, but whoever it was she undertook that for would be liberated from whatever snare the devil would set for them. And I just find her beautiful. I love um, Introduction to, to, to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. Um, I love Catherine of Siena's Dialogues. Um, of course, anything of, I think by St. Teresa of Avila, um, interior uh, castle um, where she also the where she writes about her life I find interesting as well um, I also like St. Martin de Porres and St. Paquita yeah. and I also have a devotion to the six African-Americans on the path to sainthood um, that's Pierre Toussaint Venerable Augustus Tolton, Venerable Henriette DeLille, Servant of God, Mary Lang, Servant of God, uh, Thea Bowman, and Servant of God, I could see her, she's the angel of Denver, Julia Greeley. Yes. Those people, yeah. so yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, hopefully this is a great opportunity for our listeners too to, to go look them up and yeah, learn more so. about these, these men and women who are on their way to sainthood. Gloria, I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you very much. God bless you, your family, and your ministry. Thank you. Likewise with you, Miriam. Thank you. In his encyclical, The Gospel of Life, Pope St. John Paul II writes, Every individual, precisely by reason of the mystery of the Word of God who was made flesh, is entrusted to the maternal care of the Church. Therefore, every threat to human dignity and life must necessarily be felt in the Church's very heart. It cannot but affect her at the core of her faith in the redemptive incarnation of the Son of God and engage her in her mission of proclaiming the gospel of life in all the world and to every creature. So in other words, the Christian cannot be complacent in the face of suffering because when one member of the body is in pain or in need, that ripples through the rest of the body. It's personal. It's real. We can't just observe it from a distance. The incarnation made it impossible for us to remain on the sidelines. We've been drawn into the drama of our brothers and sisters. There's not much room for islands in this story. In the document Economic Justice for All, the U.S. bishops write, Human personhood must be respected with the reverence that is religious. When we deal with each other, we should do so with the sense of awe that arises in the presence of something holy and sacred. For that is what human beings are. We are created in the image of God. So this week, let's allow that sense of awe to arise in our interactions and encounters with others, and let's pause just to give thanks to God for the truly remarkable gift of life. Thank you for tuning in. Please join me next time as we continue to blaze a trail of faith, hope, and love in our world today. Until then, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail 
produced through the studios of the Archdiocese of Portland. Join us in our mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ across Western Oregon by visiting archdpdx.org.